Thank you for listening to Rearview Mirror Chronicles. To send me an email, please use rearviewmirrorchronicles at gmail.com and to send me a message on WhatsApp, plus 6016-425-6301. Hello and welcome to Rearview Mirror Chronicles. My name is Keith Hockton. I'm a public historian, author and broadcaster. Greek mythology was such a huge part of my upbringing. I knew my Apollo from my Aphrodite. I can still recount the voyages and discuss Jason with you. I can tell you about the labors of Heracles. And the funny thing is, when so much has changed you know, in the things that we actually tell children these days, the way that we actually, you know, the way that we actually educate them and introduce them to, you know, the culture of the world, Greek myths have actually endured. And I find that fascinating. Hey, just as a um, footnote, the first Greek mythology film that I saw was Jason and the Golden Fleece. And it still brings a smile to my face now. I think it was made in like 1963. And I think I must have seen it, oh, I guess, in the in the 70s. Uh, and I've seen it a number of times since. But there's there's some amazing scenes in it with, you know, really early visual effects, you know, skeletons that come to life. And there's an incredible clockwork owl, you know, very atronomatic, you know, type creation really beautifully done. And it was actually all done by a motion animator by the name of Ray Harryhausen. And here's the connection, because you can always find one if you look close enough. You know, the whole six degrees of separation. Well, I think with the platforms these days, it's probably three three degrees of separation. That guy actually taught my best friend, DJ John Desjardin, who's a, an absolute VFX legend. Well, he actually worked with that guy when he first got into the industry. So how about that? And DJ, if you're listening, a big hello to you. I hope you and your family are well. So Greek mythology for me holds significant importance due to its profound cultural influences. It offers timeless narratives that explore I think the fundamental aspects of human nature, not to mention, you know, moral quandaries and social values. It actually provides insight, I think, into the complexities of the human condition, serving as a repository of wisdom and moral guidance. Moreover, I think it's also contributed extensively to the development of Western literature, art and language, you know, with its archetypal characters and themes, you know, which continue to inspire storytellers across generations even today. And of course, there are so many stories that I'd like to tell But I want to tell one particular story about a particular group that have all of the above qualities that we just talked about, who have actually been there from the beginning of Greek mythology, from the beginning. And it's the Furies. So who were they? What were they? And what was their role in the Greek world? Okay, so it's obvious that I love Greek mythology. But why are these stories so enduring? Well, my theory, for what it's worth, is that it's because Greek mythology has human beings at its center. So even when it focuses on gods, I don't know, like Poseidon or whoever, they have a lot of 
very human characteristics. So essentially, the currency of Greek myth is human life. You know, people are transformed or changed in terms of metamorphosis, you know, and virtually every variant of animal and plant available, you know, they're turned into those, you know, gods behave and misbehave with relation to each other and also to human beings. But essentially, it operates on a really kind of manageable, comprehensible scale. So the idea of, you know, some gigantic creature doing some gigantic thing at a level we can't possibly comprehend, as you, you know, you find in mid-cycles like Norse mythology, for example, it's not really such a thing there. They go, oh, well, once upon a time, we had this big chasm, chaos, and there were the heavens, and then that was it. And then we start getting people who have characteristics that we can actually really get our teeth into and really get hold of. And I think that's why Greek mythology is so compelling. And the weird thing to me about about it is that it feels like people have kept on adding to it. There's no original version to any myth because ancient Greece is... 2,000 years long. So from the beginning of what we would call ancient Greece to the sort of later time, almost its end, which was during the Roman Empire, from beginning to end, that's like as far as us now going back to Julius Caesar. That's a long, long time. And those stories are burbling up across the Greek world continuously, which is massive across all that time. So when people ask me, what's the real version of a story that I've just told them? You know, what was the original story? The simple answer is there's no such thing. You know, there's there's always moments where there are counter myths coming across because often local societies want to adopt a particular hero or heroine, you know. Let me give you an example of that. You know, the version of the story where Helen actually goes to Egypt rather than to Troy, you know, it's as old at least as Homer. So we spend a lot of time thinking about the Trojan War because of the Iliad, but we spend little time thinking of Euripides' play Helen, which literally begins with Helen saying, hello, (laughs) I'm on the banks of the Nile. So it's actually pretty clear where she is. She's on the banks of the Nile in Egypt. And we forget that. So they change and they morph and they change and they morph because we take them and we make them into what we want them to be. And you know what? There's actually nothing wrong with that. You know, I spend my time sad. I think I'm a little bit sad that we don't actually have more classical texts. And on this occasion, I'm actually sad that that Helen actually survived because it confuses people. And I always thought it was, you know, the that classicists described Helen as a problem play. But you know what? Then Frank McGuinness actually translated it for, I think it was the Globe Theatre about 10 to 15 years ago. And it's that thing where you realize that in the hands of a master dramatist, like Frank McGuinness clearly is, you just go, oh, actually, it's not the problem of the play. It's your problem. It's your misinterpretation. But look, I don't think that really matters. The women, you know, it feels like a very fertile place. Greek myths, this is, to find stories and characters, if you're interested in telling stories about women from the point of view of women, where women actually have agency. And I love that. Obviously, sometimes, you know, they are victims, but women play a more prominent part in Greek mythology. And this is something that we tended to sometimes not notice or sometimes, you know, disregard. But get this, we actually have, and I always like to make this point, but we still have eight surviving tragedies 
tragedies about the Trojan War by Euripides, and seven of them have women as their title characters. Only one, which is the Orestes, has a man as the title character. So what I love about that is that, you know, Euripides obviously knew that if you wanted to find the drama in a war, it wasn't necessarily on the battlefield that, that's actually covered really well with epic, but it was elsewhere in the build-up to the war, in the aftermath of the war. And here's the thing. At the end, Alfriginalis, you know, spoiler alert, it turns out she actually isn't sacrificed. She's actually substituted with a deer. And so she survives in order to become a priestess who sacrifices people. <laughs> so let's talk about the Furies. Who are the Furies? The Furies are three really quite ancient goddesses. So they are perhaps the children of Uranus. They, I'm sure you know this already, and I always feel bad saying this to the male listeners because it makes them clench their buttocks ever so slightly. Um, when Uranus is actually castrated, some of his semen falls into the sea and, and becomes Aphrodite, and some of his blood falls on the land that becomes the Furies. And this is all from the very early sources. But later sources have them as the, the daughters of night, nooks, night, and they are revenge goddesses. So originally they start out as just sort of fairly nameless revenge creatures and then gradually over time they develop personalities. And of course they're going to do that because we like them. I mean who doesn't like the Furies? And they develop an impetus of their own. So there's usually three of them and they pursue relentlessly. So if you commit a crime, particularly against a family member, never a good thing, a sort of, you know, unforgivable crime, as we might think, well, they will then pursue you until you can no longer cope. Let's just put it that way. So their most celebrated victim is Orestes, who they pursue because he has murdered his mother, Clymenestra. And they're interesting divine creatures because they're the embodiment of things that we feel like we are haunted by. So they are both independent entities and they're also very easy. It's very easy to read them as a you know psychological embodiment. And a lot of Greek myths work like this, which I think is another reason it's they're so compelling. Let me give you an example. Okay, so desire is a very internal thing. So if I were to walk into a crowded room and see a very beautiful person and fall for them, we would assume that that was on me, you know, that I'd walked into the room desperate to fall for them. We might assume that. But we also might assume, if we're a wee bit passive-aggressive, assume that it was on them, you know, that they're so beautiful that I couldn't help but fall for you. But what we wouldn't do probably is assume it was on a third party. So Aphrodite floating invisibly alongside you, just imposing desire on you, you know, whether you actually wanted it or not. And for the Greeks, that's a really plausible way of describing because they don't have a language of psychology yet that allows you to describe what happens when something like that happens, when, you know, it would actually be better for you to go home to your loyal partner, but you instead decide to, you know, snog a stranger. They don't have words for that. So they know Aphrodite inflicts you. So there you have it. You've got it covered. If you think that love could be an externally applied force, then revenge suddenly seems a bit more, or vengeance or desire for justice suddenly seems a bit more real in that sense. We do have, I think, as a society and as individuals, 
I guess, a sense that things should be fair. You know, it's the it's actually one of the earliest things that kids say, isn't it? That's not fair. So, you know, when a terrible thing is done by somebody, I think we do tend to think that there should be a consequence for that, that they should that they should pay a price. And that's exactly where the furies come in. They're the ones that you call down to to, to take that act of revenge for you. For the Furies, you know, the price is always, I think, pretty well <laughs> at the extreme end of what we consider, you know, what we would consider to be reasonable. So arrestees, well, they pursue him relentlessly. And what they're trying to do is drive him to suicide. So they torment you to the point of wanting to end it all. This is actually in the third play of the Oresteia, where the goddess Athene, who is about to you know, hear the charge against Orestes, when the Furies have pursued him all over the Greek world because he killed his mother. And let's just take a short break for a message from our sponsor. Altidomus is your one-stop shop for your Malaysia My Second Home visa. But they are much more than that. When you sign up with Autodomus, you become part of a larger community, a community that cares about you in Malaysia. And that's important when you move to a new home. So for more information, call Autodomus or WhatsApp them on plus six zero one two four nine three seven two seven zero or visit their website www.penangmyhome.com. And we are back. Now, Agamemnon you know, who's the leader of the Greeks. So this is, and this is the story. So he leads the fleet off to Troy. But before the fleet can actually leave, his priest, a man called Calchas, tells him that they that he absolutely must sacrifice his daughter, Aphrygialis, if there's to be a fair wind to get them to Troy. So he duly does that. Although, as we've said in the Euripides version, at the last minute, a deer is actually swapped for a Phrygianalis um, by the goddess herself, which always makes me wonder just how corrupt Calchas was, because if he was so right that this was the sacrifice that had to be made, how come, you know, a miracle essentially has to occur in order to save her? I'm always a bit curious about that. I've, I've thought about that a lot. Anyway. But the main story is that he actually kills his daughter, and when he comes back from Troy, she actually kills him. Orestes then has this terrible decision to make. Avenge his father and kill his mother, or allow his father's ghost to go unsatisfied and let his mother thrive, having committed her crime. And the choice he makes along with his sister Electra is to kill their mother. But that, of course, means that they're guilty of a blood crime and that they will be pursued by the Furies. And as I just mentioned, Orestes is actually pursued all the way to Athens, and Athene will stand as his juror, it appears, or maybe his judge, and then she decides to kind of step back ever so slightly and essentially become more like a judge. So she's asking all these kind of leading questions. I guess you'd call her an interrogating judge. But she allows the jury to be man-made or made of ordinary men of Athens. So Orestes is essentially judged by his peers and the Furies are actually the prosecution. It's basically a massive courtroom drama, this third, you know, kind of play in the trilogy. And what they say is, you know, we want to demand satisfaction for Clymenestra because, you know, he killed his mother and that was completely unacceptable. It's a blood crime. And this is a really elemental law. Uh, and I was about to say in ancient Greece, but 
generally, I think as humans, we'd all kind of pretty well go with don't kill your parents, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm really in favor of that law. And it's not country specific. And that's another great thing about the Furies is that they perhaps represent a time of sort of laws that we would consider to be simply true. We will always think that murder is wrong, I think, uh, probably. And murdering your parents has to be doubly wrong. And of course, there are more culturally specific things where we might say, you know, these things have changed over time. I mean, there's a really interesting case in Plato's Euthyphro, which really illustrates how cultures change because Euthyphro is prosecuting his father for having murdered a, a slave. And his family are actually really appalled that he would do such a thing. But to me, Euthyphro looks incredibly reasonable. He actually thinks all human life is the same. But to Socrates and to Euthyphro's family, he looks like a terribly disloyal son. So a perfect example of how values have changed over time. So Furies wise, it's a little bit like our use of King Arthur, I think. You know, as a novelist, you can just bring King Arthur to serve, you know, a particular purpose. And the Furies appear elsewhere, obviously. And sometimes the crimes uh, that they have to pursue people for, well, they actually don't seem that bad to me. So the story that we get in the Iliad when Phoenix comes to talk to Achilles is that he explains the reason he's childless is because his father, whose name is Amentur, has been having an affair. I mean, this implies... And of course, that having an affair actually implies consent, which isn't necessarily present um, with a younger woman. The word in Greek is palakis, which we usually translate to mean concubine. But again, that implies consent, which isn't necessarily present. And the reason I say that is because it's not entirely clear in the story. Anyway, Phoenix's mother then pleads with him on bended knee. I mean, this whole thing is so desperate for analysis by Freud. She pleads with him to have sex with her father's new sexual partner because she feels dishonored by this. And she thinks if this nameless woman has sex with her son, he'll no longer fancy her husband. It's like paging Dr. Freud, paging Dr. Freud. But, but yeah, the Furies don't in that instance drive Phoenix who's, you know, cursed by his father. His father calls down the Furies upon him, but it's not for death. It's for childlessness. And that's why Phoenix remained childless in this story particularly. So you can request the Furies when you need them. It has to be quite an elemental thing. It's usually death, but it's certainly in the case of Phoenix, it isn't. Telemachus says at the beginning of the Odyssey, when he is asked why he doesn't just chuck his mother out of the house when he's sick of the, the suitors being in his home and calling on his home and, con and constantly ringing the bell. And he says, because she'd be able to call down the Furies on me. So what you see is a sort of Furies aversion. And that's because the Furies exist, at least as far as he's concerned. And that's why, and that actually stops him from preventing, well, from committing a crime against his mother. I mean, at the very least, it would be antisocial behavior, right? To, you know, to render her homeless. But he wouldn't do it because the only reason he is thinking about doing it is because he doesn't like the young men, the suitors who are coming to, you know, apply for a hand. So the fact that the Furies are in his worldview, it stops him from stepping out of line. And that's interesting by 
by itself. So sometimes they might seem to behave really terrifyingly, as with Orestes, but here they're sort of maintaining social order. And I have to admit, I like the Furies. I think there's something to be said for a sense of sort of society-bound value or values that means the same that stops us from doing these terrible things. And I think why it's so prevalent today is I think we've lived through a time when public servants felt really capable of saying something wholly untrue or wholly contradictory, you know, of uh, of a previous sentiment. And then when asked, you know, to justify the change, have actually said, yeah, I never said that, you know, that wasn't me. And there's video evidence of them actually doing it. And yet they still deny it. And I would quite like a sense that, you know, as a society, we say that's actually really bloody unacceptable. You should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. And politicians worldwide, just an example, you know, where the Furies should be called in, are getting away not just with theft, but making the most outrageous comments and then denying they ever said it. Where are the Furies when you need them? But it also feels kind of very relatable in that way that we we all tell each other the reason that murderers and people that commit appalling crimes, you know, but go unpunished in this life. We can't believe that they're actually not haunted to the end of their days. I mean, I hope they are. You'd have to hope that, don't you? But we believe that, don't we? Because the alternative is often that they get away with it scot-free. You know, it's like if you steal the money from an old lady next door, you know, I'd like to believe that you're actually not going to enjoy that money because you're going to be absolutely haunted by the horrors of what you've done. I mean, that surely is why we love Hamlet. It's why Hamlet is such an extraordinary play and why Macbeth is such an extraordinary play. You know, there's this sense that if you do something terrible or if you've witnessed something unavenged, you can't rest easy. And you know that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth both struggle with guilt. You know that Hamlet knows that if he doesn't avenge his father, just like Orestes, that his father's ghost is going to haunt him for the rest of his days. And he has to act to stop that happening. The Furies, I think, are really interesting in terms of being female because Apollo <laughs> really despises them. And look, I have to say, Apollo is such a bloody misogynist, but... You know, one of the things that he hates them for is being like horrible ancient children. He actually calls them that because they go all the way back to the beginning. They are old gods and he isn't. But there's also something kind of childlike about them, too, you know, perhaps because of their moral outlook. You know, it's so simplistic, you know, that as adults, we would say, well, you know, sometimes it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, it doesn't take very much for us to think that there might be times when we don't think it's the worst thing you could do to kill a parent. And I'm just saying there are times when the fury is being called in. It's too simplistic. But in this day and age, if you had an abusive parent, if you were trying to protect your younger siblings from that abusive parent, I actually think it's OK. Yes, it's absolutely still morally wrong to commit murder, but maybe I would consider that as manslaughter or maybe I would consider that as a variant of self-defense. I, I would actually like some nuance on on that judgment. I wouldn't want to just say anybody who kills any parent is definitely evil because it's it's just not the case. But the Furies were here in the Earth's beginning and the Furies are much more simplistic than that. And I think that's why I find them in many ways so appealing. I quite like moral simplicity, you know. I'm always here with my kind of, oh yes, but you know, what if philosophy type arguments? And then every now and then you think, you know, I think it's actually quite good to have people who just see things in this totally white, clear light and, and 
people who actually say, you know what, you actually did the wrong thing, apologize, or you did the wrong thing and you have to atone for that. The Furies actually have different roles. I'm not sure whether I have a favorite Fury either, basically because in terms of who does what, because they all pretty well do the same thing. They're revenge gods. My favorite representation of them, I think, are always on vase paintings. You know, you get those amazing Greek vases and you and some of them are absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Well, I love the Furies on those. There's something glorious about Furies on vase paintings. I know that it sounds like a really weird thing to say, but Google it. They, they look amazing. And I like them because our literary sources are all about them being, you know, terrifying, disgusting creatures. You know, they've got horrible matted hair. You know, their eyes are, they're always watering and disgusting and sort of dripping. <laughs> but when you see them on vase paintings, they look weirdly young and oddly, I think, incredibly cool. And they wear these sort of, <laughs> they wear these sort of kind of lace up boots um, that I quite like that have slightly kind of, you know, a Doc Martin vibe. And they wear, you know, sort of tunic skirts, to, you know, down to kind of knee length skirts or maybe just a bit a bit below. They have snakes, but not like Gorgons, you know, had snakes kind of growing out of their heads, but sort of they have really kind of slinky snakes, you know, kind of coiling up their arms, you know, going through their hair. And what I also like about them is that they always look so exhausted because they're always in pursuit, aren't they? So they're always out there in pursuit. And when they're resting, when they're depicted resting, you know, either in the underworld because their quarry is now caught, they're always like leaning on each other, exhausted. You know, one's got her head in the other one's lap. They just look so, they look really sisterly and I find them absolutely adorable. And like Athena, you know, with her outfit, you always know the Furies. You know, Pythias says that at the beginning of the Eumendes, she says, oh, they look a bit like Gorgons. But actually, they don't look like Gorgons. And then she corrects herself. And she says, they look a bit like the creatures that steal from Pinius. In other words, harpies. And then she says, oh no, they don't look like that either. So she's trying to find things to compare them to, but she struggles. I actually think the Furies are just the Furies. I don't think they look like anything else apart from the Furies. And I think they're easily identifiable. What I absolutely love about them is that their very presence to me strikes fear into mortals and gods alike. You know, they're, they're these ancient goddesses that haunt the shadows. Their every movement, you know, echoing with the chilling whispers of curses, you know, kind of yet to be unleashed. I love that. You know, to encounter the Furies is to face the unyielding wrath of the cosmos itself. That's how powerful a force these, these chicks are. You know, it's a force as primal and eternal as the very foundation of the earth. That's why I love them. So remember, when something really, really pisses you off, call in the Furies. They'll do your bidding for you. Thanks very much, guys. And I'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now.